page 1112 in the Pew Bibles, and it is Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 37. Already we've heard a variety of stories, three very different accounts of coming to faith in the same Jesus. And here is yet another account which we're going to read together. The background, very briefly, is that Paul and Silas, two messengers of the Lord Jesus, have been beaten and thrown into prison for their faith. And yet, remarkably, we read in verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Imagine that, beaten in chains, singing. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, What must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And we'll just end our reading there. Well, it should be for obvious reasons to you, at least I hope so, why I've titled this sermon tonight, based on this passage, Saved at Midnight. Saved at Midnight. It actually has a a double meaning. It has a double reference. Because on the one hand, we read together that Paul and Silas, these two men who followed the Lord Jesus and who proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ, were set free when the clock struck twelve. They were saved at midnight, that is, in a physical sense. But we also read in the passage, it's a sort of story within the story, That there was another individual, known to us as the Philippian jailer, we don't know his name, who was similarly saved at the hour of midnight. Saved, you understand, not in a physical sense, but spiritually. And it is to this second case, the second man, that just for a few moments tonight, I'd like us to, to focus. To see how this man and his whole family, indeed, were saved by God. Of course, the specifics of his conversion will will vary from our specifics, but nevertheless, there are some genuine common facets that we see in every conversion. Here is the first one, facing a crisis. You see, if we will be saved by Jesus Christ, 
then inevitably we must face some crisis or other. This man, before he came to faith in Jesus Christ, came to a point of crisis. Indeed, we may venture to say that if he had never come to a crisis, he would never have come to the Lord Jesus. And we see at the start of the story that this is the case. That this man, this Philippian jailer, is really nothing like these devoted men, Paul and Silas. Uh, He's nothing like them. Uh, He probably thought of them as sort of fanatical religious people, religious fanatics. You know the type, the sort of hardcore religious, as we heard in one of the testimonies, people that go to church twice on a Sunday, that actually believe what they sing about, what they pray about. Indeed, these men had even proclaimed their faith to the point that their backs had been beaten and their dignity had been taken and their bodies had been thrown into a dark, dismal cell. That is fanatical. And so probably as he turned the key, the jailer thought to himself, these folk are a little bit nuts. They are committed to the point of being committed. They are devoted in a way that is just delusional. They're even singing in the prison cell. What is wrong with these Christians? Maybe that's how you feel to at least some extent, when you hear someone who's just so committed to God, to Jesus. And and maybe you feel a little more like this jailer. Maybe you would sit well beside him. Because he really is on the other end of the spectrum. He is the respectable citizen. He's upstanding. He's moral. He's middle of the road. And he, he holds on a very good job in society. Uh, You need to understand that this man, he wasn't just a prison guard. He was really the the warden that oversaw the whole prison. He was probably a retired Roman soldier and was given this cushy little job overseeing this prison in Philippi, just making sure everything ticked over. And in the city of Philippi, this man would have been known. He would have been respected. And no doubt he would have wished to maintain this reputation. And so when he hears that these two men, Paul and Silas, are coming in, he just throws them in the cell. He doesn't really want to know about their God or the Jesus that they profess. It kind of says it all, in fact, that while Paul and Silas are having this little worship service, they're singing and they're praying to God at midnight, uh, where is the jailer? He's tucked up in bed. And what is the jailer doing? He's having his 40 winks. He's the kind of person, when you start talking about God, he goes to sleep. A lot of people like that these days. I guess if he lived in in, in Britain in 2007, he would be one of the 38% of all Brits who claim to be non-religious. They're not Christian. They're not Muslim. They're not interested in spiritual things, new age. They're just not interested. Maybe you tonight, just not interested, to be honest. But if so, and even so, let me say to you that God may be interested in you and that God may be coming to get your attention. 
You see, God has this wonderful knack of waking up people who are asleep to his reality. And he sends earthquakes into their life. Look at what happened in the situation of this man. We read together that the earthquake struck the prison and that the jailer woke up. He was sleeping through all this. He hear the tremors shake his bed. He wakes up. And then when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. As he looks through the silhouette light, he can only see that the doors are open. And what would you assume? That the prisoners are sitting in their cell. Come on. In Roman law, it was the case that if a prisoner escaped, then the man in charge had to take their punishment, pay their due. He would have been executed for this. And so, to maintain his honor, he takes out his short sword, ready to end it all. This was his crisis. And he doesn't even realize that God has him right where he wants him. God brings, even today, you know, earthquakes of a sort into our experience so that he can get us to the desperate place. It can be all sorts of different things. You're going along in your life rather nicely, and it's the tremor of a health crisis or it's the quake of a broken relationship and the aftershocks of that. Or it's some seismic shift in the world of your employment. Or it's the bereavement that rocks your world. Some way or another, you come to the desperate place. And you start to ask questions that you would never have asked before. This is the second thing that happens as God gets this man's attention. Not so that he'll fall on his sword, but so that he might be saved. Secondly, posing a question. Actually, Paul and Silas show tremendous compassion to this man. I mean, they could have easily kept their mouths closed and he would have fallen in his sword and he would have been none the wiser for it. They could have just walked straight out of the prison. However, Paul and Silas are more concerned about this man's eternal security than their earthly comforts. And so they shout out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What you might think strange, however, is the fact that the jailer doesn't seem very relieved about this. I mean, I think I would be very happy, but he seems even more deeply troubled. And he brings them out of their cells, and he falls down before Paul and Silas. He knows this is something connected to them and their God and their Jesus. And then he asks this critical of critical questions. What must I do to be saved? I wonder what you think that question means. What must I do to be saved? It's kind of churched language, being saved. Maybe you think of, of sailors saved at sea or miners trapped underground and they're saved. Uh, but clearly here the idea is not that kind of saving. This isn't about a physical salvation. Why, the jailer's just been saved from falling on his sword. And yet now he asks... What must I do to be saved? What a strange question. I've been saved, but I need to be saved. I think the key is that he is not speaking in physical terms. He's speaking in a spiritual category. And he's asking, how can I be saved in the most comprehensive sense? Not only from the perils of this life, like falling on your sword, but from judgment in the next. 
You seem to know this God. You seem to know this powerful deity. So can you tell us, Paul and Silas, how can I be saved? What I love about the Bible is that when we ask straightforward questions, we get very straightforward answers. And they say it in a sentence, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They say to him, believe in Jesus. That's it. They say, trust in him. What does that mean, to believe in Jesus? Well, first thing, it means that you don't believe in yourself. It means that you don't work to gain merit, to get yourself into a relationship with God. The Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of God's perfect standards, his glory. And therefore, we have to believe in someone else who is perfect. And to believe in Jesus also, it doesn't just mean believe that he existed as a historical fact. It actually means to believe in who Jesus is, God in human flesh. And it also means to believe in all that Jesus did when he died on a cross. That when he died there, he died in our place And that when he shed his blood on a cross, he did so as a substitute for our sins. To pay the eternal penalty that was due to us. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus that way, this is the promise. You will be saved. Full stop. End of paragraph. Now, that's simple, but it's a profound truth. And, you know, if if it's a new idea to you, it can take quite a bit to get a hold of it. I think this is why Paul and Silas then go on to speak the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. In other words, the way that Paul and Silas do it is this. They give them the essential message. Here's what you need to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. But because this man doesn't have some kind of Christian background, they they spend a bit more time filling in the detail. Perhaps answering some questions that he has. Something that's more and more important today is people come from totally unchurched backgrounds. So I ask this service, if you have questions about things that we've said, we're available to, to speak with you a bit more. But even so, this man very quickly gets enough extra information to make his response. And that's the third thing, very briefly, that I want to touch on. Making a response. We read in verse 33 that it was immediate at that hour. That is, we're still at the hour of midnight here. He responded. And what was the response? Well, at the end of verse 34, we read it. He had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. He had taken hold of this message. Paul has said, you need to believe to be saved, and he believed in this Jesus. Now, how do you know that you have true faith in Jesus Christ? It's actually an inward thing, faith. There's a sense in which it's hard for others always to verify it from the outside. Now, I want you to notice, just briefly here, three little marks of faith. First of all, did you notice repentance? Repentance is a biblical word. It means to change our minds about who is in charge of our lives and to live accordingly. Repentance means to live 
from this day forward, not as my own Lord, but with Jesus as Lord. And therefore forsaking things and behaviors and attitudes that do not please him. Now, I think we see this change of mind in the jailer. Did you notice he has willfully imprisoned these two servants of God? And what is the first thing that he does? He brings them out of the cells and he washes their wounds. It's really a a symbol of his change of mind. Later, he gives them a meal in his home. And this isn't just an act of hospitality, though it is that. But again, it's a sign of his contrition for his sin. There is no true faith in Jesus if there is no sorrow and there is no turning from our life of sin. Secondly, notice also there was baptism. Very relevant to us here tonight. Peter explained very briefly something about what baptism is. And as Peter said, baptism is simply an outward expression of our inward faith. Baptism Let's be clear, it does not save anybody. We've just seen that in this passage. Faith saves, and faith alone. But baptism, which was instituted by Jesus himself, declares in symbolic terms that a person identifies themselves with the person of Jesus Christ. As the person goes under the water, they are saying, uh, not verbally, but they're saying in effect, that Jesus died for me, and that when Jesus died and was buried, it was as if my sin was buried with him. Price paid in full. And then when they rise up out of the water, they are saying to all of us, in effect, that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, it was as if I rose with him. And there's a day coming, a future reality, when all those who are dead in Christ when he returns, will rise also with him. It's the hope of eternal life. And therefore, if baptism, if baptism is this, if it's an expression outwardly of our inward faith, need I say that if you have faith in Jesus, you really should be baptized. Faith is the only condition. You don't need a discipleship course. It's helpful, but you don't need it. You don't need to be a strong Christian. You just need faith. This man was baptized within the hour. And thirdly, there was joy. The Bible says here that he was a little bit pleased. No, it doesn't say that. If the Bible says he, he, was, he was happy. No, he wasn't just happy. He was filled with joy. He was overflowing with ecstatic and exuberant joy. Don't be deceived at baptismal services. If ever you see some tears, let me guarantee it's tears of joy. This is the natural reaction for those who come to know Jesus Christ because it is the most wonderful relationship in this life and in this and in the next. And it came to this man. What an amazing turnaround, eh? It happened so fast. Crisis, question, response. And the joy came as he came to know Christ. That could be your experience this evening. Notice a beautiful thing, and I just finished with this. You notice in the passage that not only the jailer 
but also his whole household. All of his family came to faith in Christ. I don't think this just means that the jailer became a Christian and then sort of forced his family to follow his footsteps. In fact, it's very clear in the verses that they all heard the word of the Lord. It was spoken to all of them. And we're told that not only he believed, but all his household believed in Jesus. In a sense, there was an individual response. But also, wonderfully, they came, by God's grace, collectively. Maybe you've come this evening with one of the baptismal candidates. Maybe you're a family member. Maybe you're a friend of theirs. How wonderful it would be if, by God's grace and power, because he's been shaking your life, making you ask questions, bringing you to a response, that not only they, but you also would come tonight together to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.